during the 19th century, a tavern situated at the corner of First Avenue and Ferry Street, now known as Stanwyck Street, served as a secret hideout for some of Pittsburgh's most dangerous criminals. Shortly before the owner, Hugh O'Donnell, locally known as Oyster Patty, passed away in 1907, human skeletons were unearthed at the site of his notorious saloon during the construction of a new skyscraper. Since Oyster Patty died taking his secrets to the grave, the fates and identities of these forgotten victims have never been ascertained, thereby forming the basis for one of Pennsylvania's most perplexing unsolved mysteries. On the morning of Friday, June 22, 1906, workmen employed by the Howard Brothers contractors were excavating a foundation for a new skyscraper when they uncovered a pair of human skeletons two feet beneath the kitchen of a derelict building which had once been Oyster Patty's Tavern. The initial supposition was that the workers had uncovered the remains of two Indians, but anyone who was old enough to remember the saloon and its infamous patrons during its heyday were highly skeptical of this explanation. Back then, when taverns were largely unregulated, Patty's regulars included some of the hardest, meanest men to ever haunt the Steel City waterfront. There was murderous Mike Burns, who was later killed by guards during a prison riot in Canada. There was Brocky McDonald, the bank robber who would eventually meet his demise at the hands of his own gang. There was Booby Adams, Blinky Morgan, Kid Munn, Dutch Tony, and an assortment of safecrackers and burglars whose exploits were known to detectives all over the country. There was Joe Anderson, the bartender who operated his own crime syndicate when he wasn't pouring drinks for Oyster Patty. All of them were dead now, and could therefore shed no light on the matter of the mystery skeletons. The only tavern regular who was still alive was Patsy McGraw, who was locked up at Moundsville Penitentiary in West Virginia, doing hard time for a second murder conviction. And, of course, there was Hugh O'Donnell. But the man everyone knew as Oyster Patty was in no condition to talk. Feeble and stricken with cancer, the 56-year-old spent most of his free time either at his brother's farm in Wexford or at the hospital in Wheeling, West Virginia. Even when Patty was younger, he never spent much time at his own establishment. It was Joe Anderson who called the shots, and according to legend, Anderson had a strict rule about snitching. Before the Brooks Law was passed, Oyster Patty's regulars also included dozens of corrupt local politicians and policemen. But there was a code known to all who frequented Oyster Patty's tavern. It was understood that any secrets divulged by the patrons, no matter how incriminating, stayed within the confines of the tavern. As a result, thugs and lawmen alike were free to brag about their exploits without fear of repercussion. This turned Patty's into a sanctuary of sorts. Despite this code, some of the activities which took place inside the tavern were so spectacular that word spread throughout the city. The 1887 murder of William Tiny Sloan, which took place inside the tavern, is one such example. Sloan, 
who served as clerk to the chief of police, went into Paddy's at around 3 o'clock on the morning of August 22nd with a petty thief named Sim King and two prostitutes who conducted their business under the names of Mame Hanley and Lulu Walters. Sloan, who was popular with the ladies, recognized a girl named Ida Miller, who was seated at a table with Patsy McGraw and Ed Tash. Sloan attempted to buy Ida a drink, but was ordered to leave by McGraw. When Sloan asked why, Ida told him that McGraw had already given her a stern lecture about talking to a copper. And just what do you mean by that? demanded Sloan, offended that any of the tavern's patrons would regard him as a snitch. I meant just what I said, sneered McGraw. Besides, I have it in for you anyhow, you dirty, rotten son of a bitch. McGraw reached into his hip pocket and drew a revolver. Sloan warned McGraw that he better not try anything, but McGraw fired. The bullet struck Sloan in the abdomen. I'm a goner, he moaned, falling backwards and crashing against the bar. But when he saw that Patsy McGraw was preparing to take another shot, Sloan hurled himself at the attacker. Oyster Patty, who was behind the bar at the time, wrenched the weapon out of McGraw's hand, but the damage was done. Tiny Sloan's wound proved to be fatal, and he died six hours later at the homeopathic hospital. The sound of the gunshot attracted Officer Onstott, who raced into the tavern. One of the patrons pointed out the shooter, and Onstott pointed his revolver at McGraw. Patty, fearing for his friend's life, rushed at the officer and knocked the gun away. That's not the man you want, lied Patty. Onstott turned toward the proprietor and quietly warned him that if he tried that again, he would end up with a lead ball in the belly, just like Tiny Sloan. Once Chief of Police Brokaw learned that his clerk had been shot, he immediately ordered the arrest of everyone inside the tavern. Policemen swarmed oyster patties, arresting everyone inside the building and hauling them down to Central Station. Patsy McGraw was eventually tried, convicted, and sentenced to a relatively short term in the Western Penitentiary. McGraw escaped from the prison and was later recaptured in Kansas City, where he served out the remainder of his sentence. After his release, he moved to West Virginia, where his gun claimed another victim, and he paid for his crime with a life sentence at Moundsville. Hugh O'Donnell earned his nickname as a young man, working in Dad Heinley's seafood restaurant on Fifth Avenue as an oyster opener. Records indicate this restaurant once stood at the site of the Farmer's Bank Building, which was a Pittsburgh landmark until its demolition in May of 1997. Sometime around 1875, O'Donnell went into business for himself, opening a small saloon and restaurant at the corner of Ferry and Water Streets. Business thrived, eventually forcing him to open a larger establishment at First Avenue and Water Street. Not long afterward, Oyster Patties began to earn its unsavory reputation. And then, in 1887, came the Brooks Law, which eventually put O'Donnell out of business. He applied for a license just once, and his appearance before the Court of Quarter Sessions was so disastrous that he never attempted it again. At the hearing, the judge, after reading O'Donnell's application, looked down from the bench and asked, Aren't you the one they call Oyster Patty? Yes, sir, replied O'Donnell. 
I am surprised that you would ask this court for a license at all, growled the judge. And so ended Oyster Patty's business career, at least in Pennsylvania. O'Donnell left Pittsburgh and went to Sisterville, West Virginia, where he attempted to open another restaurant, but failed. He then planned to open a restaurant in Johnstown, but his plans were derailed by the legendary flood of 1889. His money spent, he was forced to take a job at a lunch counter in Wheeling, where he lived for the remainder of his life. The man known to a generation of rivermen as Oyster Patty passed away on Sunday, April 14, 1907, while on a train. He had just been discharged from a hospital in Wheeling and was on his way to Wexford, where he hoped to pass away surrounded by family. His brother, William, was with him at the time of his death. O'Donnell was quietly dying in a West Virginia hospital when workmen discovered the skeletons beneath the infamous tavern he once owned. Remarkably, Coroner Joseph G. Armstrong refused to investigate the matter until police presented him with more evidence suggesting foul play. As far as the coroner was concerned, the bones were those of forgotten Indians who dwelled along the Monongahela during frontier times. Armstrong's heel-dragging not only hindered the investigation, but may have sabotaged it entirely. According to Chief Deputy Harry Lowe, curiosity seekers had stolen several of the bones from the worksite by the following day. John F. Lally, the detective who first examined the skeletons, concluded that some corrosive chemical, perhaps lye or quicklime, had been used to hasten the decomposition process. He based this conclusion on the condition of a cheap, silver-colored pocket watch found alongside one of the skeletons, the metal appearing to have been exposed to some sort of acid. Yet, despite the detective's conclusion, and the fact that Indians didn't possess pocket watches, Armstrong adamantly refused to impanel a coroner's jury. As was to be expected, wild rumors began to circulate along the Pittsburgh waterfront. Since the pocket watch was found in a battered, crushed condition, with the hands of the timepiece eternally fixed at 8 o'clock, many believed that the victim had been killed elsewhere and taken to Oyster Patties for a hasty burial under the cover of darkness. This seemed possible since the tavern would have been packed with patrons at 8 o'clock, and a murder of two persons could not have been carried out in secrecy. Others claimed that the bones were those of two detectives who had broken the tavern's anti-snitching policy. But Roger O'Mara, a retired chief of detectives, squelched this rumor. No detectives had gone missing during his lengthy tenure. O'Mara had nothing but praise for Oyster Patty, calling him a good fellow who was no worse than any other bar owner in the city. The judge who denied him a liquor license in 1887 probably would have expressed a different opinion, however. The resort of Oyster Patty was no worse than many others, O'Mara stated, but it was by the river and therefore patronized to a great extent by rivermen. The most desperate criminals, however, did not congregate there. They took to the hotels where they had more privacy to concoct their schemes. History refutes O'Mara's claims, however. 
Many nefarious schemes were indeed hatched inside oyster patties, such as the infamous 1887 robbery of the Benedict and Rudy department store in Cleveland, which was carried out by the Blinky Morgan gang, who used a tavern as its headquarters. Blinky's gang stole $15,000 worth of furs and brought them back to Pittsburgh to sell on the streets, which subsequently resulted in the arrest of a gangster named Kid Munn. Authorities attempted to transport Munn back to Cleveland, but Blinky and the rest of his gang ambushed them outside of Ravenna, Ohio, resulting in the death of one of the officers. Blinky Morgan was executed in Columbus for the officer's murder. Oyster Patties was also the place where the spectacular and successful plot to crack open the safe of the Pennsylvania Railroad Depot at 3rd Street and Liberty Avenue was hatched. After the robbery, the bandits hurried back to the tavern to hide from the police, knowing their secret would be safe with the patrons. Even Detective O'Mara's favorite informant, identified in papers only as a Negro stool pigeon, was slashed to ribbons inside the tavern. Saul Coulson, a 29-year veteran of the city police force, agreed with O'Mara's assertion that the skeletons found by workers could not have been those of missing policemen. If two policemen had gone missing, Coulson would have certainly known about it. Superintendent Thomas A. McQuaid offered his own theory, insisting the murders had been carried out sometime after Hugh O'Donnell closed the tavern and moved to West Virginia. Newspaper reporters combed their archives trying to dig up stories of unsolved murders and mysterious disappearances, but couldn't find any puzzle pieces that fit. The rumor that gained the most traction, and by far the most plausible explanation, was that the killings were carried out by bartender Joe Anderson, who ruled the tavern with an iron fist whenever O'Donnell left town on one of his frequent trips. Is it possible the skeletons belonged to a pair of gangsters or thieves who had made the mistake of double-crossing Anderson? Anderson was known to be the ringleader of his own band of burglars. These bandits entered the tavern through a back door to divvy up their spoils, under Anderson's supervision. These facts seem to suggest the murdered men may have been members of Anderson's gang, who, upon returning from a successful robbery, got into an argument with Oyster Patty's bartender and were given a swift and terrible reward for their efforts. But if Anderson played a role in burying the bodies beneath the kitchen floor, he never felt the icy breath of justice on his neck at least not in the earthly realm. Anderson died ten years before the skeletons were discovered. I'm not surprised by anything they may find under the place, declared former police captain Charles Gallant to the Pittsburgh Daily Post after the skeletons were found. It was no doubt the toughest resort in the United States at the time. But one thing can be said. Oyster never participated in any of the crimes which were planned there. The place seemed to be known to every thief in the country, and every one of them would go straight to the saloon as soon as he reached Pittsburgh. Gallant knew from experience that this was true. Not only was he a former police captain, he had also been one of Oyster's bartenders. Of all the policemen who spent time inside the tavern, either drinking liquor or serving it, few were as intimately familiar with the rabble-rousers, rivermen, and roustabouts who made Oyster patties their home away from home. In 1906, Gallant shared his own story about the infamous Blinky Morgan Gang. 
One evening, the whole gang, including Blinky Morgan and his bunch, were in the place when a riverman came in. Joe Baker took him outside and stole $40 from him. The riverman hunted up a gang of his friends and it came back. The battle that followed was a beaut. Guns, knives, glasses, sandbags, and paving stones were the weapons, and the gang almost tore up Ferry Street to get enough cobblestones. Oyster and I each got a baseball bat and finally drove everyone out of the place. Then we stood at the door, and when anybody stuck their head in, we soaked them with the bats. That was the only way to keep order in the place. The former police captain and bartender added that during his tenure at the saloon, he saw many strangers who had made the mistake of wandering inside, only to be led away from the building by thieves. We never saw them again. There was a rumor in circulation that two fellows, suspected of being detectives, had been murdered by the gang, but that was before I went to work there. Perhaps the primary reason why the mystery remains unsolved to this day is because the authorities didn't know too little, they knew too much. Oyster Patties was a place where patrolmen and pickpockets sat side by side, where murderers and mayors went to unwind after dark, where politicians and prostitutes drank their worries away. Like Cheers, the fictional Boston bar, Oyster Patties was the sort of place where everybody knew your name. If you enjoyed this podcast, look for my latest book, Pennsylvania Oddities, Volume 2, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Walmart.com, or through the Sunbury Press website at www.sunburypressstore.com. The Pennsylvania Oddities podcast is written, produced, and narrated by Marlon Bressy. Theme music composed by Marlon Bressy. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org. Find the Pennsylvania Oddities podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you find your favorite programs. New episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month.